Hello, everybody, and welcome. Today, we're going to be looking at a set of notes on the pre-World War II period known as the appeasement period. There is a PowerPoint that I'd like for you guys to take a look at uh, that'll match up with this podcast audio. So please make sure you find that file before we start. It should say appeasement on there. So today we're looking at the aggressors on the march. We're looking at three nations in particular who are acting uh, in aggressive and demanding ways that will eventually launch the first period of the Second World War with the invasion of Poland in 1939. Our second slide says appeasement. Today we're going to be explaining the appeasement period as it pertains to World War II, so we'll look a, bit, a little bit about context um, of appeasement. But really our lesson is focused on the five major questions there. Who, what, where, when, and why? Who we're going to be looking at the people, the major participants and characters, historical characters, historical nations and groups uh, as they pertain to appeasement. What is appeasement? So we'll define appeasement. Where did appeasement take place? When were the time periods of appeasement? And then the last question will not be answered by myself or in this audio or in the PowerPoint. The last question of why will be answered by you in your lesson, in your packets that you have. If you turn to your packets, you'll notice the eyes of Adolf Hitler staring at you. That page and the next two are going to be the ones that you're going to be using to answer the question, why? So let's move on to the PowerPoint, and we will get to that final question, why, a little bit later. So the first question that we have in the third slide is what? Appeasement defined. All right, so the question here is what is appeasement? And let's look at the definitions. We have two of them. The first one says, giving into an aggressor so as to keep peace. That seems to be pretty quick and I think pretty easy to understand. Um, there is somebody who is acting in an aggressive way, making demands to you, and you are going to try to pacify them, give them whatever it is that they want, and hopefully peace uh, is the end result. Peace is what the final um, uh, result is. However, if we notice the second bullet point here, the second bullet point, I think, gives us a little bit more that the first definition doesn't. So the second one says, to yield or concede to the belligerent demands of a nation, group, person, etc. in a conciliatory effort, sometimes at the expense of justice or other principles. So as the first one's kind of quick and perhaps maybe a little bit too easy to understand, the second one, I think, dives into something a little bit deeper. Right, to yield or concede to the belligerent demands, that one's still part of that first definition, right? giving in to an aggressor, in a conciliatory effort, sometimes at the expense of justice or other principles. And it's that last part of the second bullet point, right? sometimes at the expense of justice or other principles. What are you willing to give up? What are your moral, ethical, principles that you're willing to sacrifice by potentially giving in to a bully, giving in to the demands of that aggressive nation, that aggressive leader. And so here in this lesson, we're going to talk a little bit about what exactly were those principles that some nations gave up, maybe principles that, that are part of their foundations, part of their um, 
their construction, their, their national consciousness that they usually promote, what is it that these nations are willing to sacrifice in order to make sure that war is not the answer? So let's move on to the, the next slide. And we're going to look at three nations here. And this is our first. We're looking at the questions for who, where, when, and the timeline steps of appeasement. And we're going to focus on Japan first. Now, yes, this is AP Euro, and we're going to be focusing mostly on the European portion of appeasement. But what's important in context here is to understand what is going to lead to appeasement in Europe. And first and foremost, that's actually going to come from what is occurring in Japan already years before the Second World War is erupted. So the Japanese from 1850 to 1929, a couple of major things have happened there. Number one, and we've talked about this during the imperialism phase, the United States uh, has opened, I know that's kind of an awkward way to say it, but maybe better way of saying it is that Japan has opened to the world. Uh, remember that under the threats of Commodore Matthew Perry, the American uh, naval Commodore, uh, Matthew Perry told Japan that if Japan would not allow the United States to trade with them, that the U.S. Navy would come back in a year's time and bombard and destroy Tokyo. And when the Japanese emperor realized that his country was so far behind in technological advancements that he was afraid that if he did not open the doors to the West, that what was happening in China would eventually happen to Japan. That much like China was being occupied or taken over by the European imperialists, imperialists Japan would also have to uh, open up or be eaten by the West. And so what the Japanese are going to do is they will open up their doors to the West, but they'll also start to westernize and industrialize on their own. And in a 50-year, I mean, a massive flip in 50 years, they are changing their ways. They are going from... Eastern backwardness to Western copycat advancements. And even within those advancements, they start to realize that if they are going to survive the imperial game, they have to become an imperial country themselves. And they already do so in 1910. In 1910, they're going to occupy Korea. They'll eventually take over the peninsula and they will submit the Koreans much to the second-class citizenship that much of the Africans, the uh, Asians, Indians, Latin Americans were subjected to by Europeans during the imperialism phase. Once again, so if Japan's going to survive imperialism, then they're going to maybe be the ones who imperialize, not the nation that becomes imperialized, uh, that will undergo imperialization. Uh, in 1914, we know that the Japanese are going to fight alongside the British. They're going to join the war and start attacking uh, German positions. They're hoping that by the time the war is ended and Germany is defeated, that the allied victorious nations will look at Japan with some sort of benefit and say, hey, thank you. We appreciate your efforts. And perhaps Japan will get a large amount of the old German colonial uh, outposts, uh, trading posts, as well as Papua New Guinea down in the south. They're looking a lot for natural resources. That's the one thing the Japanese do not have a, a lot of on their um, their islands, their island chain. So they're looking for that in other places. Um, they don't get exactly everything that they wanted. Remember, they got the Pescadores uh, Islands. They have the, I believe, the Yellow or the Yangtze River that used to have uh, German trading posts on, but they did not get the, the largest point of land, uh, Papua New Guinea down in the south, for oil purposes, for natural resource purposes. Uh, as Japan 
continues in from the 19, uh, 1918 to 1922. Japan is looking to continuously expand in Asia. They're starting to become a major powerhouse in their expansion. And in 1923, um, the British and the Japanese end their alliance, a, um, a military alliance between the two nations. Um, England is starting to become really wary of Japan and Japan's expansion in Asia. Uh, expansion in the Pacific. And so this is going to be probably one of the first times that the United States and England are going to be alarmed. England already has, of course, a huge amount of their colonies in Asia. The United States is on the other side of the Pacific. And so if Japan, uh, Japan starts to expand across the Pacific waters, eventually there is going to be some headbutting between the United States and Japan. And Japan already knows this. Um, Japan already in the late 1800s, early 1900s have plans of a potential war against the United States. They don't know when that war is going to take place, but if they are going to expand, they know that they're going to be pissing off quite a lot of European or Western powers. And they know one day that there is going to be a war between the United States and Japan. 1925, uh, the Japanese institute universal suffrage, male suffrage uh, in the country. Um, massive voting, massive turnaround for the Japanese. And then in 1929, the Great Depression strikes. And Japan happens to be one of those countries that because of their connections with the United States and global trade suffers tremendously. Massive unemployment will hit Japan. Uh, depression hits and we end up having a military coup, uh, a rise of the military that will overthrow the government uh, in the 1920s, late 20s, early 1930s, and start to press militaristic style of rule upon the Japanese people. Uh, in 1931, if you guys noticed there, 1931, the Japanese are going to invade Manchuria. Uh, the Japanese are no longer going to wait for handouts for uh, industrial areas where they can get natural resources. They are going to take. And so they invade the northernmost state of China along the eastern border. Uh, they will invade from uh, Korea. They'll actually instigate a war, and then they'll say they'll invade it to, to put down conflict. But the Japanese invade Manchuria. And this is going to be the very first offensive act of the Axis powers, the nations that become the Axis powers of Germany, Italy, and Japan in the early phases of the buildup to World War II. When we talked about this being AP Euro, and we'll be looking at Italy and Germany in just a moment, what is happening in Asia is setting the stage for what will eventually happen in Europe. In 1931, the Japanese belonged to the League of Nations. And the League of Nations, if we remember correctly, according to President Wilson, was supposed to create a lasting peace around the world. That nations would no longer believe in war, choose war, but the League of Nations would provide a location for nations to come and, and sit down at a table and talk to one another, uh, talk about their grievances, and hopefully, like we said, they believe in class, all hold hands and sing Kumbaya and somehow some great peace would derive. But when the Japanese invaded Manchuria, the League of Nations you know, didn't come down harsh on Japan. Remember that the League of Nations can't come down harsh. They have no military. They can talk all they want. They can speak out against the Japanese and how the Japanese are invading a, a peaceful people or instigating war. And that's exactly what the League of Nations does. The League of Nations will talk and talk and talk about how the Japanese have done something horrible. And then the Japanese leave 
the League of Nations. They are tired of being spoken to uh, in a derogatory way. And so they will leave the League of Nations. And that's it. The League of Nations tells Japan that what they're doing is wrong, but there is no physical way for the League of Nations to get involved. Now, there are ways for the Japanese to be dealt with. If one country in the League of Nations or two or three would like to make a coalition, an alliance, and go to war against the Japanese, then that's fine. But the League of Nations can't vote on war. They don't have they don't have the army to go in and stop the Japanese. Already in 1931, there are a couple of guys that are looking at the first steps that the Japanese are taking from a European perspective. And those two men are Benito Mussolini in Italy and, of course, Adolf Hitler in Germany. Now, by 1931, Hitler is not chancellor of Germany just yet. But the way that the Japanese are going to be treated that way is the way that, that eventually the League of Nations perhaps might treat Adolf Hitler and Mussolini. Once the Japanese have invaded uh, Manchuria and Hitler and Mussolini are looking at what the Japanese are doing and the League of Nations isn't doing anything to, to stop the Japanese from their invasion, uh, the next major event um, that gives us, once again, more context to the appeasement period happens in 1937. The Japanese in 31 have taken Manchuria and they will declare all-out war on China uh, and one of the most horrendous events that takes place in the early phases of the appeasement period leading into World War II is the rape of Nanking. Um, upwards of 300,000 citizens of the city of Najing, or Nanking, China, um, are left to um, the Japanese army. Uh, they come in and they manhandle and destroy and pillage and rape men, women, and children. And so news of this, even in 1937, that's going out of these tragedies and horrors that are taking place are leading the world to eventually make a decision. Where does the world stand in 1937 against the horrors that the Japanese are committing against the Chinese? And in 1937, when no war is declared against the Japanese, once again, that signals a message to the other two Axis powers nations, uh, Benito Mussolini in Italy and Adolf Hitler in Germany, that these two men can potentially get away with their own acts of aggression. So let's move on to the next slide. Who, where, when, timeline steps, Italy. Uh, 1922, yeah, Mussolini comes to power. Remember that Mussolini and his black shirt goons have threatened the king of Italy, Victor Emmanuel III, and have told Victor Emmanuel that if he does not elect or place uh, excuse me, Mussolini in power uh, as the leader of, uh, of Italy, that eventually the black shirts will burn down Rome. It becomes known as the March on Rome in 1922. Uh, the king, looking out for his own butt, will put Mussolini in power, and fascism reigns in Italy from 1922 uh, forward. Looking at what the Japanese have done, as well as looking at what the international outcry has not led to, has not led to a declaration of war on the Japanese for their atrocities that they've committed from 31 to 37 against the Chinese, Mussolini is going to make his first steps. In 1935, Italy is going to invade Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopia, during the imperialism phase, was wanted, desired by three major nations the French, the British, and the Italians, um, mostly Italy, um, attempted to take over 
that land. And what the Ethiopians did at the time was to stockpile weapons, um, stockpile the weapons uh, that the French offered them, that the British offered them, even Italian weapons, to eventually fight against an imperial invasion when that took place. And when Italy attempts to take over Ethiopia, the Ethiopians have enough weapons to put down the the Italian attempts to take over Ethiopia. Well, in 1935, according to Benito Mussolini, Italy wants their African empire back. And so the Italians will invade Ethiopia and they will use very nasty means of warfare, including illegal gas, gas that was declared illegal in 1918 as a result of the Treaty of Versailles. But the Italians will come in, they'll invade Ethiopia, they'll gas um, the Ethiopians on the battlefield, and it is a resounding victory for the Italians. And what does the world do against Italy? Well, they'll definitely point the finger at Mussolini. They'll point the finger at uh, the Italians. They'll say that what the Italians have done is horrible. They've broken uh, the laws of war. They've used chemical warfare against their, their enemies. And that is it. Even in England, there's some talk about potentially boycotting Italian pasta, as funny as that sounds. But nothing really is done. Um, the British are still or we're still allowing the Italians to gain access to the Suez Canal in order to get their military ships to invade or send troops down to Ethiopia. So while the British and other nations are condemning the Italians and pointing the finger at them for their invasion of Ethiopia, Britain's not stopping them from getting to Ethiopia. They're actually opening up the doors and saying, please use our riverways, use our canalways in order to gain access. Um, but once you get there, don't murder anybody. But it doesn't seem like the world is taking this at all serious. And of course, by 35, uh, Hitler is also looking in on this in context still again and saying to himself, well, Japan has not been stopped since 1931. My buddy Mussolini just took over Ethiopia and nothing's happened to him. Perhaps this might mean that for Hitler, it's his attempt or some of his first attempts to make his first moves to see what the world's reaction will be. In 1939, Italy will annex Albania. Um, that's really on the eve of World War II. So even though we'll, we'll include it here as part of the appeasement period, um, the world is on its way to the first gunshots going off for the Second World War. So there's not much of, of what the world is going to do. They will surely condemn the Italians for annexing a piece of land that does not belong to them. But beyond that, it looks like the world is starting to lean in the direction of war. If we're looking at our next slide where it says who, where, when, timeline steps, Germany. All right, so let's focus a little bit on Germany. When we talk about appeasement, it's really going to be this, Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler's steps in taking over territory that's going to lead us in this direction towards war. So 1933, Hitler becomes chancellor of Germany. If we remember correctly, Paul von Hindenburg, who was the president of Germany, looking to create a new government, offered Hitler the position of chancellor if Hitler would take his amount of national socialist seats in the Reichstag and add them to the conservative party so they can make 51% and take over the government. A month later, the Reichstag building burns down. Hitler will use that as an attempt to say that the, the communists are coming into power. There's a revolution. And through that chaos and propaganda, eventually the German parliament, uh, members of parliament will give Hitler 
um, dictatorship powers uh, during what is known as the Vote for the Enabling Act. Uh, Hitler eventually becomes Reichsfuhrer, uh, Reich's Chancellor, and uh, or Fuhrer, Chancellor, and President combines. He becomes the ultimate leader of Nazi Germany. So from 33 to 34, here we're talking about mostly the works projects with Germany's attempting to try to get back on track after the uh, disastrous hyperinflation period and period of uh, unemployment. In 1935, Hitler takes the first step in breaking the Treaty of Versailles. Now, if we remember correctly, the main keepers of the Treaty of Versailles were to be England and France. However, England, after the Treaty of Versailles was signed, they went a little bit soft on Germany and started to think maybe we've done some harm to them. Maybe we should sign better agreements, trade agreements with them. And so really the keepers of the Treaty of Versailles um, is going to be France. All the weight is on France's shoulders. And France at the time, in 1935, there's a civil war that's raging in France. France is already dealing with the results of the Great Depression. There's massive unemployment happening in France. It looks like uh, communists and fascists are trying to battle it out in the streets to come to power. So France is in a chaotic moment of civil war. And so in a way, uh, and I'm not going to you know, completely throw the French under the bus in this, but usually the view from the historical perspective is that France has a set of blinders on, that while they're trying to deal with their problems domestically in France, Adolf Hitler is looking to make steps to expand his power, um, break the Treaty of Versailles, and see what might be the consequences. There have been no consequences so far globally. The Japanese have murdered and declared war. Nothing's happened. The Italians in 35 have murdered, declared war. Nothing has happened against that nation either. And so perhaps Hitler might get away with murder here. So in 1935, Hitler orders conscription into the army. Conscription means voluntary service. Remember that the League of Nations only allowed Germany to have how many troops? 100,000, right? By the time you throw in generals and whatnot, we're talking about maybe 103,000 or something like that. Remember that the League of Nations also forbid Germany from having tanks and airplanes and submarines, large weapons. Well, Hitler starts building tanks and he starts his Luftwaffe, his air force, large weapons start to appear. And at this point, France is the keeper of the treaty. They are to declare war immediately and invade. But they don't. They don't, once again, because they have issues and problems that are going on in their own country. And because the British and sometimes even the French look back in history, back in 1919 at the Treaty of Versailles, they start thinking, well, you know what? Maybe maybe Germany is only getting what they justly deserve, right? Maybe we took so much away from them during the Treaty of Versailles. Maybe Germany can have you know more than a hundred thousand men. Maybe they need tanks and maybe they need guns. Maybe they need airplanes. And slowly but surely, Germany is going to lift up their ranks and build their ranks and their tanks and their airplanes and, and become militarily prepared for a future conflict. So while England and, and France are looking the other way, um, Hitler is going to make his first move to take land. In March of 1936, Hitler is going to occupy the Rhineland. Now, the Rhineland is German, but the Treaty of Versailles said that Germany could not put troops in the Rhineland. The Rhineland is a section along the Rhine River between Germany and France. It's kind of a buffer zone, a buffer zone or a, uh, a protective border area. A buffer zone usually means that you're not allowed to put any weapons or any men in that area. 
France had wanted this buffer zone at the end of the First World War because if Germany was to break the Treaty of Versailles, it would allow French troops the opportunity to enter German territory, right, national German territory, without a shot being fired by the Germans in defense. And it would allow the French to occupy miles of German territory before they got to the actual Rhine River and eventually step into uh, a military area of Germany. So it, was kinda, it would allow the French to have a, uh, a head start in a German land without the Germans being able to fire at the French. Well, Hitler in 1936, he crosses the bridges of Cologne in Germany, steps into the Rhineland. Uh, in one of his diary entries, he said that he was prepared to retreat if the French had fired back. And the French don't. And the British don't. They definitely condemn uh, the League of Nations and France will condemn the Germans for breaking the Treaty of Versailles. But once again, no action is taking place other than speaking. And so we might throw this under the um, the term of appeasement, right? You're going to let Hitler get away with whatever he wants as long as peace is the final uh, result. Um, and for France, what are they giving up? What of their principles are they giving up in order to have uh, peace between France and Germany? And even from the British perspective, what is England willing to give up in the short term uh, in order to have peace? in the short or, or long term. In March of 1938, Hitler creates what is known as Anschluss. Anschluss is the union of Germany and Austria. Remember that Hitler is not German-born, he's Austrian-born. So Hitler is taking his Austrian land and annexing it, uh, taking it, making it part of the larger German empire, German Reich. This is once again illegal. In 1936, here is now a third opportunity for the French to declare war, but they don't. They're coming out of the um, of a uh, economic depression. There's still civil war that's really uh, ripping France apart. So France has other things on their mind. But September of 1938 and March of 1939 uh, takes a little different turn. As far as the Nazis are concerned, one of the reasons why they want all of this land, uh, or even in 35, one of their main reasons or rationale behind building their army was that Germany was too small of an army to protect its 50 to 60 million people. They needed a larger army. They're taking the Rhineland because, darn it, that's German property. That's, that belongs to them. And then they start coming up with this idea of what is known as Gossa, Gossa Deutschland or Greater Deutsch, Deutschland or Greater Germany, that wherever there are German people that are living outside the border of Germany, that those German people belong to Germany. And so the Austrians are a Germanic people that they belong to the fatherland. They belong to Germany. And then the Sudetenland. Uh, the Sudetenland is not a country, but it is a portion of a mountainous region of the newly developed nation of Czechoslovakia. Um, there are Germanic Czechs or Germanic Sudeten Germans that live in that area. They speak a Germanic language, but they historically have never been part of Germany. They've always been part of the area of the Czech Republic, present-day Czech Republic, or Bohemia. But because Hitler starts pressing this idea that all Germans should belong to Germany, he starts making threats. And here comes the bully of appeasement, the aggressor. If I don't get the Sudeten Germans, then I will declare war on Czechoslovakia. And this, of course, leaves Czechoslovakia in a real, real pickle. The only nation that Czechoslovakia has on its side as an ally is Britain. 
And Britain at first starts to tell Czechoslovakia, it's okay, we have your back, it's here, we have your back. But when the Nazis start saying the word war, if we don't get our German Sudetens, if they do not become part of Germany, then we will declare war. And this is where the ghosts of World War I are present. Right? England realizes that maybe Hitler is not, <laughs> is not joking, that war might be a possibility here. And so the British will ask the Germans, they'll ask the French, they'll ask the Italians to meet in Munich, in Bavaria, and southern Germany. And from this becomes known as the Munich Agreement. Uh, the Munich Agreement says that Czechoslovakia will hand over the Sudetenland to Germany. So Germany will now take the Sudetenland. And at the cost of peace. So if you take a moment to look forward, you're actually going to see the man who crafted this period of appeasement. The, the Munich Agreement is usually seen as the epitome, all right, the big epitome of appeasement. That is Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain is the man who is shaking hands with Adolf Hitler. Um, going back one slide, um, in, in March of 1939, so after the Sudetenland has been taken, um, the Nazis will eventually take all of Czechoslovakia. And if we jump forward, we're going to be kind of going back and forth here. If you go down two more slides, you're going to see Neville Chamberlain, uh, where he is holding up a sheet of paper. He's at Heathrow Airport in London. He's just come back from the agreement with Adolf Hitler. He is, uh, Hitler has signed the document, and he is showing it to the people who are all ecstatic because many people in England did not want war. They did not want war only 20 years after the end of the First World War. And so it's peace at all costs. And what you have here is a small speech that is known as peace in our time. And let's take a listen. First, I want to say that the settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem, which has now been achieved, is, in my view, only the prelude to a larger settlement in which all Europe may find peace. This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. Some of you perhaps have already heard what it contains, but I would just like to read it to you. We, the German Führer and Chancellor and the British Prime Minister, have had a further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance for the two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. We are resolved that the method of consultation shall be the method adopted to deal with any other questions that may concern our two countries, and we are determined to continue our efforts to remove possible sources of difference and thus to contribute to
to assure the peace of Europe. Now, I do want to say that, of course, the people that are there in front, and if you've noticed the immense cheering that's going on, the majority, the vast majority of British citizens are in favor of appeasement. The vast majority of British members of parliament are in favor of appeasement. There are not many people that want to go to war against Germany or believe that war is an honest answer to the dilemma that is going on in mainland Europe with the expansion of Italy and the expansion of Germany. Uh, If you're looking at it from a parliamentary position, uh, you have two major parties that are attempting to rule England at this time. You have the Labour Party, which is the ruling party. That's the party of Neville Chamberlain. His party is the main party who is advocating for appeasement. But even the other side Uh, The Tories, who are the conservative members of parliament, the vast majority of them want appeasement as well. Um, What this means for us is that in context, World War I looms still very large in the minds of the British people. The British people are not willing to sacrifice a potential uh, war, uh, sacrifice their children, send them off much like they did just 20 years earlier into the trenches of World War I, they don't want to repeat that. They want peace. Um, so the skeletons of World War I in the closets are still alive and well. Um, of the 386 members of parliament that are members of the Tory party, only 30, only 30 members of the conservative Tory party actually stood up and voted against the Munich Agreement. And it led to an uproar. Uh, Lady Willingdon uh, said of Duff Cooper, who was one of the members who resigned his position, this conservative member resigned his position because he thought that England had totally been uh, slapped around with by the Nazis. This woman said, I should like to crush his head uh, to a jelly. Um, And you're going to just crush his head because he stood against the position of appeasement. This man wants war. I want to crush his head into a jelly. Of Winston Churchill, another man said, those traitors, Winston Churchill and his lot should be shot. Um, We're talking about a feeling, a vast feeling in England that war is not the answer. And it's not to say that the Tories, those members of parliament, the ones that stood up, those 30 members are advocating for war. But what they are advocating for is a strong line position, a strong line British position that is favorable to our allies. And in the end, we retain our principles are just principles that we determine our alliances upon. So when we look at Czechoslovakia, Czechoslovakia can be proud of England because they made the right move in becoming our friend. Or that when we look at Czechoslovakia, the British people know that they can be proud of themselves because they did not sell out their, what would you call it? Their, they did not sell out their uh, justice, their uh, national honor, to a goon like Adolf Hitler. And if we uh, scroll down a or go down a couple of images, you're going to see another who question. And that's Winston Churchill. He is the member of parliament, one of the main members, uh, one of few uh, members of parliament for the Tories that's advocating against appeasement. That's not to say that he wants war once again, but he wants a position in which the British people can be proud of that England has retained its values and justice. 
The next image comes from a speech of his called uh, A Disaster of the First Magnitude. Uh, this was given on October 5th of 1938 at the House of Commons. And so I'm going to try my best to say it as if Winston Churchill would say it. Winston Churchill usually, if you ever listen to some of his speeches, it sounds like he has, his tongue is too big for his mouth. It's got quite a bit of... Uh, so, quote, We are in the presence of a disaster of the first magnitude. Do not let us bind ourselves to that. It must now be accepted that all the countries of Central and Eastern Europe will make the best terms that they can with a triumphant Nazi power. Our loyal, brave people should know the truth. They should know that there has been gross neglect and deficiency in our defenses. They should know that we have sustained a defeat without a war, the consequences of which will travel far with us along our road. They shall know that we have passed an awful milestone in our history when the whole equilibrium of Europe has been deranged and that the terrible words have for the time being been pronounced against the Western democracies. And I do not suppose that this is the end. This is only the beginning of the reckoning. End quote. So we are in the presence of a disaster of the first magnitude. This is a disaster that has befallen England like none before. The greatest screw-up in British history. And his ending line, and I do not suppose that this is the end, but this is only the beginning of the reckoning. This is only the beginning of the time of troubles to come. If you look at the next image, um, what Winston Churchill here is attempting to really show, and, and as well as some political cartoonists, is that the leaders of the West, the leaders of democracy, including France and England, and even Czechoslovakia at the time was a democracy, are spineless, and that Hitler is simply walking all over them, and that the spineless leaders of democracy are going to lay down their values, their national values, uh, and give up to Hitler whatever it is that he wants, right, to appease him, give in to the aggressor so as to keep peace. And so if you notice the steps that Hitler is actually goose-stepping on, as he's doing his little, I don't know what you'd call that with his hands, but he's doing like a little na-na-na-na-na. He's walking past rearmament. He's taking over lands like Danzig, uh, question mark, double question mark, double exclamation point, triple exclamation point at the very top. It says boss of the universe. The next image is one that you guys might recognize. This is an image that comes from Dr. Seuss in the 1930s. Dr. Seuss was a animate anti uh, appeasement or had an anti-appeasement stance and there in the middle of the cartoon on his shirt or his jacket says the appeaser and he's handing out lollipops and all these nasty and vicious nazi serpents want a piece and they want a lollipop for themselves and it says remember one more lollipop and then you all go home all right we're going to give the aggressive serpents whatever it is they want but they're going to accept peace they're going to go away doesn't look like those serpents want to go away. The next political cartoon is also from Dr. Seuss, and this is supposed to create perhaps a moment of question for the American people. There is Uncle Sam, who represents the American people, and a man bent down in front of him that says, America first. That was one of the campaigns. Um, you might have been an appeaser. <coughs> Excuse me. You might have been a appeaser in England, but here in the United States, because we were in isolationist mode after the end of World War I, 
that movement became the America First movement, right? We deal with what happens here in America. We don't want to deal with what happens across the world. So America should come first. And here along the tracks, screaming down the tracks is a Nazi train and it's heading straight towards Uncle Sam in the United States. But yet the America First appeaser says, relax, Sam. I assure you the express turns off right here. And if you notice the junction, it says appeasement junction. It doesn't look like that small little set of railways is even aligned properly, let alone wide enough to take on that train. And this is supposed to be Dr. Seuss trying to tell the Americans to wake up. Eventually, the Nazis are going to come in our direction if we don't stop appeasing, if we don't get involved, if we don't end the stupidity of American first and deal with the problems of the world. Eventually, those problems will end up on our door. The next one is also Dr. Seuss. And we'll read this as we go through it. I was weak and run down. I had circles under my eyes. My tail drooped. I had a foul case of appeasement. And then I learned about guts, that amazing remedy for all mankind's woes. Now I'm taking it daily. And today I feel strong enough to punch Mr. Hitler right in the snoot. So on the left-hand side, you have the before, the weak appeaser. And on the right-hand side, you have the guy who gave up on appeasement and found that term guts to stand up to the aggressor. The next image says the great U.S. Uh, sideshow, and here's Uncle Sam. If you know, he's a carnival barker, or if you see him, he's a carnival barker. He has a little megaphone there in his hand, and he's pointing at a man whose shirt says appeaser, and if you notice, the man has no backbone. He has no guts, and Uncle Sam, the carnival barker, says, and on this platform, the most amazing marvel of the age, he lives, he talks, and yet the guy has no guts, showing the gutlessness of the appeaser. For some of our, our final slides, let's actually go through um, what your lesson is going to be. So why appeasement, right? Why is it that England and France chose, and you guys are going to be focusing mostly on England, but why is it that they chose appeasement versus a tougher stance versus the potential of war? So your lessons, you're going to, or for your lesson, you're looking at these questions. Why did Britain choose appeasement? Was appeasement a mistake? And was there another option? If not appeasement, what could it have been? And then finally in your lesson, you're going to be writing a speech in favor of appeasement or against appeasement, depending. So our next slide, you should see one of the pieces of paper that you have in your packets. It says, was appeasement a mistake? Here in front of Hitler's face, you have 10, um, 10 reasons why, uh, or 10, 10 reasons why England wanted appeasement or 10 reasons why England did not want appeasement. It's actually five and five. You have five of them that are reasons that eventually show us that it was a mistake to appease Hitler, and five reasons showing us that it was not a mistake to appease Hitler. So for each one of these, as you're going through this, in the actual box, in each of those text boxes, if you can either put an M next to the title, the part that's bolded and underlined, signifying that that idea was a mistake, meaning that it was wrong to appease Hitler, that you know it was wrong that we should have gone to war or stopped him. And in any box that you feel is a reason that appeasement was the right choice, you're going to put an N signifying that it was not a mistake, that it was indeed the right choice. Appeasement was correct. Now, we all know appeasement was surely a mistake because we have 2020 hindsight. We can look back and say, well, appeasement led to the start of the Second World War. That's not what we're asking here. All right. These are 10 rational reasons, ideas that people had in their minds at the time period. 
Five of them say that appeasement was not a mistake, that appeasement was correct. And five of them suggest that appeasement was a mistake, that it was wrong. On the next slide, you're going to see the very next page in your packet. What I'd like for you to do is once you have your five M's and your five N's, and I would ask you to cross-reference that with maybe some other students in the class to make sure that you have the right five. If you do have any questions or, uh, or issues with which five should go where, text me and we'll see if we can uh, talk it out or, or text it out. Above Winston Churchill, I need you to list just by title. You don't have to put everything that's in the box in the previous page in that section, but by title, what are the five um, arguments that shows us that appeasement was a mistake? And then above Neville Chamberlain's picture on the right-hand side, you're going to write in just once again by title what you see in the previous page, bolded and underlined, not the entire text box, uh, the five uh, bullet points here on why it was not, why appeasement was not a mistake. And what I want you to do is to just list them, right? Actually um, copy them down and, and make a list because that's going to help you given your next lesson or your next assignment. If you go to the very last page or um, slide of the appeasement PowerPoint, you're going to see the next page in your packet. It says you need to find the answers with your partners. You guys don't have partners, unfortunately. You guys are at home. Um, but what I'd like for you to do is not answer these questions by writing them down, but before you go to the extension there at the bottom, that you know the answers to these nine questions. All right. So if it says, why might it be said that Germany deserved a fair deal? All right, you need to know what exactly they're referencing here. What does it mean, fair deal? What deal are they talking about? This is a Germany should have deserved a fair deal. Uh, why was it? Um, why was giving land or extra land to Germany dangerous? You should know the rationale behind it, what the Tories believed or what the British position was. If we give more land to Germany, how is that potentially dangerous to uh, the threat of, uh, of war in Europe. So simply note, review, go over those nine questions so you're best prepared to eventually either complete uh, extension number one or extension number two. Now, extension one or two, this is what you're going to be submitting on Google Classroom. It's the final assignment. So let me see what we got here for, for time. All right. So for the final assignment, this all depends on your first name. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, if your first name has an odd number of letters in, in it, then you're going to be completing extension number one. You're going to be writing a speech, a one-page speech, where you are defending the policy of appeasement. You are Neville Chamberlain, so you're going to be speaking on his behalf. Right? You, I would probably say you're going to start off by saying, members of parliament, I, Neville Chamberlain, believe, something of that nature. And you want to make sure that you're defending your position of appeasement. Now you have not only five bullet points that you can reference, five, five arguments that say that appeasement was correct, but you also, in one of your readings, have Neville Chamberlain's word, and I believe it is called in defense of appeasement. So you can read, not only refer back to your five bullet points, but read a little bit from Neville Chamberlain. I'm okay if you take ideas from Neville Chamberlain, but please make sure that they are your own words. You're not copying his terms from that reading or other readings that are online. Extension number two, so if your name has an even number of letters in it, your first name have an even number of letters, then you will be completing extension number two. Extension two, you are Winston Churchill, and you are writing a speech that is attacking and saying that appeasement was rubbish. Rubbish means trash. All right, now, note it says that you are attacking appeasement, not Neville Chamberlain, 
So if you are Winston Churchill and all of you who are doing extension number two, you are Winston Churchill. So you're going to start off just like Neville Chamberlain would have started off. Members of parliament, I, Winston Churchill, take the position that, but your position is against appeasement. So at no point should I be reading something that says that uh, Neville Chamberlain is a moron. You don't want to write or say something like that, right? You're attacking the position of appeasement, not the men or the members of parliament who are suggesting that that is a proper uh, direction that England should take. Um, I am contemplating that if you can do an audio file of this, if you could find a way to record yourself and submit the recording, and in that recording, you are, to your best of ability, completing it, completing the speech in a British accent, whether you're Winston Churchill or you're Neville Chamberlain, then I'll give you some extra credit for that. Right? You'll still be submitting the written portion of it, um, but you would be re uh, reading it and pretending to be Neville Chamberlain and Winston Churchill. But once again, extra credit would be for the British accent. You're reading it and uh, delivering it with a British accent. Um, we're going to stop here at this point. This is the next lesson that you guys have. Um, there is going to be a, an additional extra credit assignment that'll be coming out a little bit later on next week about the battles of World War II. You guys actually have that in your packet. It's one of the last pages. Um, I will put up the readings that go with each one of those battles. Uh, that's all you have to do is just read uh, the info sheets and answer the questions and make sure that they're uh, ready to submit. I, I might I might ask that you snap pictures. I might actually just take the file that I have, um, put it on the computer, and you can do it that way. You could type out your answers. I would say whatever is most comfortable for you. If it's easier for you guys to write and snap pictures faster, or if you enjoy doing it on Google Classroom and typing out your answers and submitting it that way, as long as I get the um, the work back from you, then I'm I'm okay. Um, in regardless if it's uh, taking of pictures or completing it typed on Google Classroom. Hopefully everybody is, and uh, you, uh, you and your family, I hope everyone is doing well and uh, hope to see you guys as soon as possible. If you have any questions about this lesson or any, any of the other lessons, please try to contact me as soon as possible. I'll see you guys or I'll hear from you guys soon. Take care.